Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. UX Cake is all about developing the layers you need to be more effective in your work and to be happy and fulfilled in your career. I'm your host, Lee Allen Arredondo, and I'm a UX leader and leadership coach. I know there are a lot of people out there who are facing changes in their work and careers right now. So I wanted to bring you an episode that might help you navigate this very challenging time we're in with so many layoffs and org changes and just kind of general anxiety that I'm hearing out there about what's happening with the future of our work. My guest today is renowned design leader and author, John Maida, who is no stranger to career shifts and changes himself. In this really inspiring episode, John is sharing with us his message of focusing on recovery instead of failure, and also the importance of intentional reinvention. This episode is a replay from 2019, and I think it's just as relevant today, maybe even more so, if that's possible, as it was when we recorded it. Since our conversation in 2019, John has gone on to a couple of different roles and is now the VP of Design and Artificial Intelligence at Microsoft. John and I talked about his keynote at Interaction 19 conference, which happened in 2019, and which has since been recorded and is available online. It's actually quite inspiring as well. And I've included a link to that and some other references and books that we mentioned in the show. Those links are in the show description and our website at uxcake.co. So whether you are looking for a mindset shift or you would like some ideas about recovery and reinventing and renewal in your work, John Mida's message is sure to leave you feeling motivated and inspired and I hope ready to take it on head first, just like on Pond Man. <laughs> You'll get the reference to that in a little bit. So let's dive in. Hello and welcome to UX Cake. I am so excited to share with you all this week my conversation with John Maida about reinvention. We actually covered a lot of ground in this conversation. John talked about why we should focus on recover fast versus fail fast, why inclusive design is so important, and why we should be using Onpon Man to train our AI platforms. Yes, Onpon Man, the cute little Japanese superhero made out of bread. John is really hard to introduce because he is so well known for so many things, uh, not just in design, it's across design, tech, and business worlds. So on a personal note, he wrote one of my favorite books a number of years ago called The Laws of Simplicity, which I think actually should be required reading for anyone in design, certainly, but also anyone who is building products at all. Uh, he's also written extensively on design and leadership and technology, and he's led the MIT Media Lab. He's been president at RISD, Rhode Island School of Design. He has been and still is an advisor and board member of many companies, startups and large like Sonos and 
So whether you know who John is or not, you are in for a real treat because he is just so insightful and truly enjoyable to listen to. I had a fantastic time talking with him. Hi, John. Thank you so much for joining me on UX Cake today. Thank you. I wanted to start out asking you actually about a short video that I just saw on your YouTube channel about Anpan Man. Anpan Man? You know Anpan Man. You say your, your pronunciation is better than mine. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so I had never heard of this character before, but he's a Japanese superhero who's basically made out of bread? Bread. His head is made out of bread. That's right. <laughs> And he's got like a smiley face on his chest and he has circles for hands. So clearly he can't grip things too well. <laughs> <laughs> he's kind of an anti-superhero superhero and I love it. But I'm curious what it is about that hero that really resonates with you. Well, you know, on Man, the Anpan universe is made for like kindergarten <laughs> age people. And I thought it teaches great values. Because the way that Anpan Man lives is Anpan Man's flying around and then sees someone who's hungry and then kind of swoops down and like takes a piece of his head off and gives it to them. And then he does this and then suddenly the, the enemy comes. The enemy is Bacteria Man. So he, you know, he's fighting and he's like, oh, I'm weak, I'm weak, I'm weak. And so he has to go back to the bakery where he was born to make a new head. Wow. And the moment where you switch heads is the best because basically his head pops off. And another head pops on, and he's like, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> if only all of life could be as easy as popping your head off and popping a new head off. <laughs> so this definitely relates very much to this topic of reinventing yourself, even more than I realized. Like, I had this idea of someone who's giving pieces of themselves away to others, and so then continually regrowing, but that's even... <laughs> <laughs> like a bigger change than I quite. Uh, your head. Yes. <laughs> so I guess there's clearly a connection there. Well, you know, it's like Lee's walking around and, you know, has a hard day and, you know, getting beaten up. Nothing ever happens to anybody in life. But, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, there's so much stuff in here. And like, pop, new head. Awesome. Let's take it on. <laughs> it's very kindergarten in that it's very kind of almost Pollyanna-ish. But what I like about it is that there's like hundreds of episodes of Anton Man. So every time he figures it out. And to me, I want a machine intelligence system to like study on Man <laughs> and think like, hey, this is how humans should be. This is how they want to be. They want to help each other and they're tough enough to get renewed and reborn. And I guess I believe in it. Yeah, there's definitely a story of resilience. You know, when I became aware of Greenleaf servant leadership and all these kinds of models where the leader isn't like a six foot seven person, nothing's wrong with being tall, by the way, or, you know, being that kind of like iconic leader, you know, who's like out there that's muscular, that's taking on dragons with a gigantic sword. There's all kinds of leaders that you don't really see. And those leaders can get a lot done and they may not get any credit for it, but the point wasn't to get credit. It was to make things happen. So I think of that model leadership as kind of embodied by Anpan Man's adventures, trying to get stuff done. Yeah, that is a type of leadership that really doesn't get a lot of credit and often is hard for people like that to advance into leadership positions. Yeah, it's a recipe for disaster. I guess over time, I've seen that 
there's accidents that put me in situations of leadership <laughs> <laughs> that probably shouldn't have happened, but that have excited me because I get to do things that I wanted to do my way, which is a, a little different. Speaking of that, your own career has had such a wide span across products, education, art, technology, business, not to mention writing and teaching. And so does it feel like you have been reinventing yourself or does it feel like these are just organic changes that happen in life? I got nervous when people started saying it was strange. <laughs> <laughs> like, what, you left that? Wasn't that like a good thing? I said, yeah, why'd you leave it? And like, I don't know, I thought that I should grow. And I got to tell you that each time I've left something good, it's always felt great. Because when you're in a position of authority, you're, you're usually blocking someone else from doing something else. When I left MIT, they were able to hire two new people to replace me. And I really liked that. So I feel like every time you leave, you, you're taking up space for someone else. And it's better off if you enable more new things to happen. And, you know, people say, like, how are we going to innovate? How are we going to innovate? Well, why don't you get out of the way? Why don't you yourself get out of the way? Well, that's a really fresh take on that, though it does speak to uh, having a longer term vision as opposed to right here, right now, this is what looks good for me. I don't know. I, I'd like That's a nice way to frame it. I just know that I'm kind of an accident of the system in that I'm born in the U.S., my parents had no education, and by just different accidents, I was able to go to college and do what I'm doing right now. And I think that was really lucky. And so I don't want to waste the luck, and I want to see what I can do to spread it around. That's all. You have a keynote at Interaction 19 coming up. Can you just tell us a little bit about what you'll be talking about? I was asked to talk about sort of reinvention or the return or recovery or renewal, which is my, my favorite topic. I think I might talk about, there's this idea in the technology industry about fail fast. You know, fail fast, awesome, failure is great, but I think failure is terrible. I like recovery better because recovery is more important than failure. So I like to say recover fast. I guess I'll talk about, you know, how do you focus on recovering fast as the goal? Because failing fast is not the goal. And recovering fast is hard. And how do you recover fast? That's something that I'm really interested in. For some reason, when anyone loses their job that I know, they'll reach out to talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> not because they want a job for me. They're like, you know, you seem to recover a lot. What did you do? You know? That's excellent. Do you have a couple thoughts just that come to mind about that are important? Yeah, I think my first thought is that once you realize it's over, get excited because all the things you were trying to figure out have become evident to you. The problem with doing anything difficult and new is you don't know where to step or where not to step. And then when you failed, you're like, oh, I see. I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> and just to kind of like savor that is really important because that's something you can take into your next adventure. And the second thing is to think about who's really your friend uh, becomes more evident when you fail because all the people that were like, you know, yeah, that's my best buddy. You know, they're really there for me. They've got my back. And you like turn around and like, where'd they go? You figure out really clearly like who, who really had your back, you know, who's there for the long run. 
who wants to support Lay not just this year, but 10 years from now? And that's a special gift. So things like huh. that. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought of that one. That's a really good point. I know the first point of feeling relieved or feeling some sort of relief. I'm in a startup now. I've been at, at a couple of startups that didn't make it. And there's a certain stress that comes with that. But there's also... When it doesn't make it, that stress is gone. Oh, <laughs> There's no need to stress one. about it any longer. Great analogy. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> hey, it's like you played a video game and like, okay, no stress. I don't have any more money to put in the machine. <laughs> mm -hmm. Game mm -hmm. over. One thing I wanted to ask you about, your most recent career change, becoming the global head of computational design and inclusion at Automatic, which in and of itself sounds really fascinating. But it sounds like that change was definitely a very intentional reinvention. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little about what led to that. Well, you know, I realized that I've been an important person in different ways, you know, whether being on a board or like investing in something or supporting this person, advising that, whatever. Someone criticized me, not to my face. It's harder to do. <laughs> I know, like, yeah, you know, I know John, but you know, John's never been in house at scale, and I thought, hmm. you know, they're right. So let's correct that. So that was my intention of joining Automatic was to experience what I'm talking about in a way that I could only understand by being in it. So it's been great. You've also mentioned that inclusion is a passion of yours, and the article that I read it sounded like that was kind of a more recent thing. You know, I have a long title, but it's basically just being head of design. <laughs> mm -hmm. But the, re the reason why I made the long title was I wanted to remember that there are two kinds of design that are really important right now. One being inclusive design and the other being computational design. And the reason why I wanted to bring inclusive design into the foreground is by being in Silicon Valley and observing how startups, larger companies tend to bias towards men in terms of the making side specifically, usually development and also product and design as well. I didn't think that was a way to make great products to serve the entire population of the world because if half the world is women, problem. And that's just on the gender lines. There's also age lines as well. There's also race and culture lines too. So I was like, wow, this is like irrational. So let's move inclusion into the foreground. So I began doing that. Yeah, that's great to hear. It's definitely something that's been coming up more and more, especially for me with the guests that I've been talking to. I mean, I guess when you start talking to people who are working in this area of design, it can feel like, oh, maybe we are reinventing our disciplines so that we have more diverse voices and perspectives coming into the field, which maybe we do more than 20 years ago. But when you go out and actually look at who's building products, it doesn't really look like we have reinvented anything yet. Oh, my gosh. No, not at all. At the leadership level, you know, where you source research from or testing from or, you know, all, all these systems have bias that are deep in them. So my goal has been to point out how ineffective it is and how irrational it is wherever I can. I'm trying to show how that kind of thinking can lead to better business outcomes, because when you show a better business outcome, people start to listen. Well, that's for sure. Do you have any techniques you can share with us that you've been using successfully at Automatic? Nope, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> How do you measure better business outcomes from being more inclusive? You could argue that how do you measure better business outcomes for design? 
if you think about it, product runs everything, generally speaking, with developers. And designers play a role in that, but their goal isn't to get credit for the outcome. And their level of influence varies depending upon the project and, of course, who's involved. So I guess I'm really interested in, first of all, highlighting the issue, which is no longer difficult because everyone knows about it. And then now, like, what techniques are there to improve products? And wherever I can spend my time, I put my brain there. A simple example is, I think it was two years ago, we were launching a new illustration vocabulary for our front end and in product. And we worked with Alice Lee. The illustrations she produced were sort of thin, pale people. And I asked, can you make them like all kinds of people? (laughs) Mm -hmm. I remember she was surprised. She buried the body size, body type, age. She added so much diversity and the the vocabulary became so much more interesting. And it was fun to watch Alice do the work for Slack afterwards. I think that was Slack. This diverse illustration thing became a thing. I saw Shopify do it as well. So that was one way that I thought was important and that we started off at Automatic. Other ways are making the effort to work with people on the other side of the digital divide. Because I think in tech, we think that everyone has a iPhone X or an XR or whatever it is now, SX or whatever, you know. But other people don't have smartphones. So working with them and realizing how stupid you can become by becoming smart is a favorite topic of mine to improve the quality of product design. When you say working with, do you mean research or actually having these people come in and participate in building products? No, going to them. So we partner with the CEO of Rebrand Cities, Hodge Fleming, and he has build-a-thons in different cities. So we either go there or we participate through being like a, a live laptop person, and we build things for different people, build websites. It's a great way to understand that customer and where they're coming from face-to-face and to work in different neighborhoods that we might not normally visit. And I think that sounds like really important work. Why do you think that? Because it's very obvious that there's elitism in the products that we design in tech. Mm, Yeah. Or at least that's how it seems to me here in Seattle. And I have been in the Bay Area as well. And (laughs) when you're in these product teams, they often think of themselves as the user, which is the number one worst thing right. to do as a designer. Yeah. But it can be really easy, especially at Amazon. Yeah. Well, I mean, any large company, I don't want right. to pick on them. But, um, uh-huh. you know, when everyone around you is like you. It's not good. It makes you dumb is what I believe. For instance, when I was visiting in Detroit and talking to an audience of four public high schools, uh, the public high schools range from the top performing to the lower performing. And it was about 100 of the best students. I'm trying to relate to them, to Gen Z, right? And I'm like, well, you know, I pull out of my pocket my phone and just tell like, well, you know, I come from the desktop era, but this is your world, right? Raise your hand. Like, how many of you have one of these? And less than half raise their hand. Oh, wow. And I was like, wait a second. High school. <laughs> you know? Right. You know, if you, if you live in a nice suburban or whatever, a neighborhood, high school, like kids have smartphones when they're like 12 years old with like AirPods. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so I was like, okay, I am stupid. <laughs> so stupid. Or like we were like in the International District in Seattle. That's where I was raised, actually. And we were like making a website for a small restaurant. And when the engineer said, wait, wait, they don't have a computer, number one. And wait, mm-hmm. wait, 
You mean they don't have any time to use the bathroom because there's only two of them running the restaurant. One's in the front, one's in the back cooking. And they work from 10 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week. So like those moments when you had them, you're like, how stupid am I looking for like, whether it's DAUs or MAU or you know, we're playing in this fictional world of everyone you know, liking everything or shopping. I was like, wait, I don't think they're doing what we think everyone's doing. You know what I mean? Those are fun, fun moments. When you realize that you didn't know something? When you didn't know anything at all. (laughs) (laughs) Because then you question and you rebuild yourself. Going back to the renewal thing, you're like, huh, is that how it really works? Well, I got to start over again. Or I can start from a different point too. But I didn't learn it right. Let me learn it better. And can I serve more people because of this knowledge? I personally, I love this idea of, you know, growing in your career. And I think one thing that I see people struggling with is, you know, knowing that they need to grow, knowing <laughs> that they need to, yeah. you know, this is the, that's the right thing to do. They need to learn some new things, but not knowing how to take the next step. And you, you laugh like that sounds like you've heard that before from people. Uh... So maybe... What would you tell a person in that situation? Wow. Well, I laugh because I'm often jealous of people who like know exactly what they want to do and they've known their entire life and they never stop doing that one thing because they don't have any like confusion and they can just go to the 7-Eleven and, you know, get their Slurpee. Does that happen anymore? They can just like have their life and like not think about that. But I think that creative people have a healthy paranoia, knowing that they have to diversify their sources of information, because that's how you create interesting things. And the older you get, the more conservative you get, because it's scary to make changes. So I just tell people that I agree with all of that. But anyone I see who has gone through a transition whether forced or voluntary, they always come out to be different people. And they're they're always happy they did it. But Mm -hmm. it takes the courage to do that, to take the next step. And it's worth it. But you don't feel it until like a few years later. So it's delayed gratification. Yeah, you're right. I think a lot of times people are waiting for that moment where they feel like, okay, I know this is the right thing to do. And sometimes that happens. It's always awesome when that does, but it doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes you just have to do it and not know if it's the right thing to do. Yeah, that's why if you have people around you that are supportive, everything can happen. After having a supportive network around you, always a good thing. Yeah, and back to that original idea of quick renewal, quick recovery <laughs> after failure. Well, I mean, another, another moral of the story is be nice to people. I think Anton Man's never a jerk. it's true because you want people to be there for you another part of that is being there for other people and vice versa yeah it's it's reflexive so it's win-win if you're lucky to work with people in that way and i've just enjoyed being an automatic almost almost three years just relearning everything a lot of things are the same from my previous lives a lot of things are new but the thing that is constant is Moore's Law's impact uh, continues to change how we think about the world. And when I was at MIT, I could feel it every day. And now in the industry, I'm like, I feel it like every second. So mm. it's fun. It's fun. And it can also be invigorating, but sometimes it can be stressful. A lot of people 
find oh. it to be very stressful. Well, especially on the career side, I think, because, you know, we you kind of touched upon it a little bit, but it's the fact that the field keeps changing. The field of creating experiences keeps changing and the names keep getting used to rebrand what it is as new. Like I loved when product design became a thing. I think, isn't it like industrial design? And I'm like, no, no, it's mm-hmm. different. It's like user experience meets whatever. We're like, that sounds like industrial design, but um, which it was like 30 years right. ago. So I think we get caught in the terminology. And because the field keeps changing, people are fearful for the future. Oh, that's a really interesting point. I don't know that I've ever connected those two. Yeah, it's like 30 years ago, if you were a user interface designer, your life was set and you realize, wait, that's bad to be called a UI designer. Oops, you're going to become an information architect. Right. Uh, became, oh, bad. You got to call her. You got to, okay, I'm a, I think I'm a product designer. Okay, there we go. Okay, now I think I'm actually a product manager. <laughs> you know, I think right. I'm a product manager who's kind of a designer too. And I develop on the side. It's like a buffet. As this buffet keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And all the food gets older and older quicker. So you aren't (laughs) sure which food to eat. (laughs) That was actually kind of the impetus behind the name UX Cake, not the buffet, but the the layers that we have to keep adding on in our careers. One thing that I I really wanted to, to thank you, actually, you talked about an essay by John Gardner. John Gardner, yes. And you recommended it. All the time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you said you read it regularly. I, I mean, do, every week. It's very, very powerful. Isn't it good? It really is. It's called self-renewal. And well, it has a lot to do with this topic of reinventing yourself. There's definitely a theme of change throughout life. And he wasn't in the technology industry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's just you, a human thing. It's just a universal thing. And and I like how he points out that there are people who are happy doing the same thing over and over in life and they're done. And there are those who are seeking change. And once you achieve the change, you thought you were going to be done. But then once it's done, you realize, oh, there's more to do. And there is no end to it. That's what's beautiful about what he says. Don't, don't expect there's, it's all going to culminate in this magic like uh, Star Wars. You walk for a celebration moment. No, there's no, it just keeps going. And it makes you feel more at ease knowing that what you are doing is not original. It's what everyone who's tried to do something unique with their life has tried to do. Yeah. And that that point of there isn't really a single moment that you've achieved at all. Something that I've realized as I've gotten older that has to do with happiness. And we're all, you know, always looking for happiness, but Happiness isn't this one thing that you achieve. It's like these moments in life. Well, you know, Regina Dugan once introduced me to the work of Khalil Gibran. Oh, yes. One of my favorite poets. Uh, a joy and sorrow and how, like, you don't know sorrow unless you know joy. And that's this weird thing. And you can never know the other if you don't know one of them in, in full intensity. So... I, I kind of like that. You know, when something bad happens, I'm like, oh my gosh, that means something good's going to feel so much better. You know? <laughs> it's good if you can remember that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe that's one of my expertises. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I broke my arm. Awesome. Really, when I broke... That means I'll feel better some sometime. <laughs> yeah, when I broke my arm and then like the doctor said, well, at least, at least you can move your neck. And I was like, awesome. I'm not paralyzed, right? 
I'm serious. I was like, I felt so good. I was like, yes, I did it. <laughs> oh, I love how this conversation has gone in a completely like different places than I ever expected. So oh, <laughs> I guess I, I expected that maybe. Okay. I know we have to wind up pretty soon. One last thing that I wanted to find out. So we're UX cake and we love cake and we would really like to know what is your favorite cake? My favorite cake is, uh, what is that cake that's like chocolate, but it's red? Red velvet? I love red velvet cake. Yeah, my favorite. Mm, that sounds delicious. That definitely, I think, would need like a maybe a rum cream cheese frosting or something. Uh, I can tell you're a connoisseur. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I want to thank you so much for speaking with us, John, Maida, and I'm really excited to see you at Interaction 19. I hope I get a chance to meet you there. Back at you. All right. Thank you. You can follow John on Twitter at John Maida, J-O-H-N-M-A-E-D-A. Hey, UX Cake listeners, I get a chance to talk to really brilliant folks in our field on a regular basis. Lucky me. But I am doing this to bring you great content that you want to listen to. So I want to know what you want to hear. Do you have any current situations you'd like to get expert advice on? Send in your questions. We're going to be bringing back the mini mentoring sessions that we did occasionally in season one. Go to our website at uxcake.co and send us your questions, situation, comments, whatever. You can also connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you have enjoyed UX Cake, please share it with your friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a bite.